Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our good news segment. Christina Riley is joining me here today because one of the things you've heard me talk about uh, over the past 10 years is talking about literacy and basically sharing my own story of growing up and literally not knowing how to read or write. How is that even possible in the United States? Well, it is possible. But, you know, now what we're saying is there are things that we can do. There are things that we have learned. There are innovations that are out now. But today, here we go. Why, after 20 years of reform, our students score stagnant on the nation's report card? Why is that true? Well, we're going to be talking with Christina about that and how one national nonprofit is changing the story. Christina, thank you for joining me here today. I don't think I'm surprised about the results, but then again, I'm one of those people that went to a lot of years of school, graduated high school, and uh, what? No, you cannot write or read very well. I don't think that's I don't think that's unusual based on the study, is it? I mean, given the, the results of this particular assessment, no, I mean, it, it, it's showing that after 20 years of reform, student scores are still stagnant. And just to note, I mean, the study is really focused on reading comprehension. So after 20 years of reform, reading comprehension scores are still uh, relatively stagnant. And let's talk about what the national scorecard is. I, I like to consider it as a baseline, um, which means it's information that allows us to see what we might do better in a way to really provide a broader level of education, right? So let's talk about this for a minute. What What is it? And from your perspective, from what you're doing in the nonprofit arena, why is this so important to create transformation and change? So the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, as it's sometimes called, or the Nations Report Card, it has many different, <laughs> many different names. Uh, it's given every two years to a representative sample of students in public and private schools across the nation. It's given in grades four and eight, and also approximately every four years at grade 12. But we're more focused on grades four and eight for this. And it really tracks achievement over time and across states in reading and math. And the reason that we've been so focused on it is because we are trying to, we're trying to create a change. Um, you know, we're asking the question, why after 20 years of reform are student scores still stagnant? Well, there's many factors that contribute to this. And one of the things that we've been focused on a lot is research. 
So EL Education has created a high quality English language arts program mm -hmm. for K8. And we've really focused it on the research because quite honestly, there's still many programs being used in classrooms to teach children how to read that are not aligned with the research. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about the website is what it says, because I'm a perfect example of this, and it is get smart to do good. And the reason I love that tagline is because I had a passion and a purpose to get smart and never really thought I was. Um, and, you know, so it became a lifelong journey for me, you know, to get smart. And the only way I knew how to do it was to go back to school and get educated, right? I mean, right. years and years and years of school. But getting smart to do good goes beyond credentials and education. Because if you can't read and write, it's hard in the world to do the good that you want to do, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think it goes even beyond learning how to read and write. Something yep. that we focus on in EL education are three dimensions of student achievement. So, yes, we focus on the mastery of skills and knowledge and on the literacy skills for our curriculum specifically. But we also focus on building character. Yep. So we want to help students understand how to become effective learners, how to become ethical people and contribute ethically to their learning community and how to contribute to a better world. And we also focus on students creating high quality work as well as that's um, something that's needed in the real world. Once you get into the world of work, regardless of your career, high quality is something that is a, necess a necessity. Yeah, there's no question about it. And I was going to talk with you about that because most of the, most of the program focus is focusing, uh, unidimensional. I like to call it. There's this unidimensional aspect of, uh, uh, of learning, but without the aspects that you're talking about, and especially in the arena where I taught leadership, you know, especially in these other arenas, you know, we have a sense that you might be very, very knowledgeable and have the skills, but what does it mean to do good? And that's the second part of your theme, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. So our curriculum, while it is a literacy curriculum, has embedded social and emotional learning. Um, so we really are teaching students how to collaborate how to um, you know listen and speak to one another in a way that's respectful we're teaching them how to persevere how to have respect for one another how to have empathy and um, the great thing about literacy as a vehicle for this is that there's so many wonderful texts i mean any book that you read particularly a fictional book even uh, non-fiction actually even informational texts about people will share uh, challenges that people face and how they overcome those challenges and those can become great models for students in how to overcome challenges themselves or how to respond to another person who's struggling and um, we we can use literacy as a vehicle to to really teach students how to understand those um, habits of character and how they look when they're demonstrated effectively. Wow. You know, the thing I wanted to also talk to you about is let's talk about teachers for a minute. Um, you know, we're looking at a population of people 
that work very, very hard in this country. And in particular, at least that's my knowledge and experience of it, um, work very, very hard. And, you know, at some level, don't really get quite the respect they need. But you've started a project. Tell us about the Teacher Potential Project. So the Teacher Potential Project was one of it's, it's a five-year federally funded um, study, and essentially what it's studying is the combination of curriculum and professional learning, and how that can lead to raise increased student achievement. Because while we believe very strongly that a high-quality curriculum is important, we don't believe that that in isolation is enough. We think that it's really important to provide teachers with professional learning to help them improve their practice to really increase student achievement. So the Teacher Potential Project was designed to investigate that. And what it found is that the two combined do lead to change in classroom practice, which does then lead to increased student achievement. And this sort of counter the common understanding that professional learning doesn't make a difference. There was some research that was released a while ago that suggested that professional learning doesn't make a difference. Um, this study and the results of this study show that combined with high quality instruction, it really can. And it also shows respect for our teachers. I think anytime we go in, we work with a district, we always provide high quality curriculum and professional learning. And we really want to make the teachers you know, show the teachers that we really value them as professionals. Like a curriculum is just a tool in the hands of the professional. Wow. Look, I know you've got a lot of these interviews to do, so I want to thank you. But before before you go, uh, two things. One, what is the best way for people to find out more? And what is it we want folks to take away from this massively important project? So to find out more about us, we are eleducation.org. That's eleducation.org. And I'd really like people to take away the three dimensions of student achievement, that mastery of knowledge and skills in itself is not enough, that we really want to um, help students to become effective learners and ethical people who can contribute to a better world and who can create high-quality work. Wow. Thank you so much for all that you do on this. And thank you so much for reminding us that we are whole people. We have more dimensions than simply some college board score or some IQ test. Thank you for reminding us of all of that. Thank you. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. TransformationTalkRadio.com Hey, everybody. Since the last time that Priscilla Rodriguez said I had a conversation, I have gotten a number of different emails from folks who have asked me, is it really true, Pat? Did you really, 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 really struggle with the college boards? I really, 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 really did. There isn't any question about that at all. And the GREs, almost made me lose my mind. But that's not the world we're living in today because we've got people like Priscilla Rodriguez, Vice President, College Readiness Assessments, the College Board, who is here shouting from the rooftops, come on, we need to get ready. Don't get stressed. Get strong. That's what today's show is about. Priscilla, it's great to have you. Welcome back. 
Thank you. And Dr. Pat, have you trademarked Don't Get Stressed, Get Strong? Or can I borrow that some other time? I know. Isn't that the weirdest thing? But I you know, love it. I, but look at it is about this for students. I think you need to borrow it to help students. Go for it. Okay. Um, you're I, on the record giving me permission. I am giving you permission because you're. I have no intention to do any work in the field that you're in. I'm going to use it for something <laughs> else. But look at this, I know what this is about. I mean, I really do. And I know it as even as an adult trying to study for this. But we have now great progress. Here's what I want to ask you of two things. I want to give out the website right at the front of this. So let's get that done. And then I'll ask you again. But we need to talk about setting the stage for success. So let's get at that. Perfect. So let yeah, let's start with the websites. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two, and they're both very simple. But the first is the home of all things SAT. What is it? When to take it? How to register? That is SAT.org. Couldn't be easier. Uh, the second website, and I, I hope we'll get to talk about this, yeah. is about how to practice and prepare. Oh. And the headline is there is an amazing free way to do that now. But the the website for that that I want every family to know about is satpractice.org. Yeah, we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about that. Because I'll tell you one thing. It, there's an old expression that I don't know how old you are, but I know like my mama used to say, practice makes perfect. And when it came to these exams, I totally blanked out on what my mom taught all of us kids. But let's talk about what students should get ready for and why there are more tools now for students than there ever have been. And so the thing that we have to emphasize is we got to take the pressure off of practice, Priscilla. This is yeah. number one for me. If we are not taking the pressure off of the kids to practice, they are never going to get the pressure taken off to do the actual test. So let's talk about that and what is now available for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. And uh, practice makes perfect rings true. Um, before I get into the specifics, I'll say that, you know, one of the things that I hope that we can together, you know, help families and kids think about is, is that concept of practice, right? We practice our, you know, if you're on a basketball team, you practice basketball. If you uh, are on the swim team, you go to swim practice. Academics shouldn't be any different. We're not born knowing everything. We're not born with a brain that can only do certain things and can't grow and stretch. And I think practice when it comes to academic skills and knowledge is something that every student should feel comfortable with and, and should have tools for. So to get to the tool that we have for them when it comes to the SAT. Um, so I mentioned that website, satpractice.org. What that is, is the home of um, a free online practice tool, set of tools called Official SAT Practice on Khan Academy. We partnered with a nonprofit, Khan Academy, to develop it back in 2016. It is completely free. It is accessible to every student who wants to use it. 10 million students have used it so far to study for the SAT. And it uses real SAT questions, real full-length SAT practice tests, and diagnostic tools to show students the areas where they are already strong and the areas where they could improve and then gives them questions, videos, and exercises to focus them on those improvement areas mm -hmm. 
and help them measure their progress so that when they do walk into the SAT test, they feel prepared, confident, and not surprised by what the, the test asks for and how it asks for it. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. If we don't set the stage for that first practice experience to be that of motivation and less about perspiration, then these kids don't come back. I mean, as an adult, I didn't come back. And I think we have to really get in the game with them and literally look at this as a game if we have to and say, look, this is no different than anything else you would do be doing in your life. And if you do it, you will get better at it. See, that's the thing we're, we're just missing sometimes. Exactly. It's like, if you do it, trust us, you're going to get better at it. Show, tell us about some of that that's going on. Because I think if we, if we talk enough about this to folks that are getting ready to take these exams, then they will practice and they will have the hope and the faith, Priscilla, that they will get better. Yes, I, I think you're spot on. So, so we have, as I mentioned, we have this world class free practice tool, and it's got the it's got real questions, it's got videos, it shows you where you know where to practice. Right? Think about it again. Let's use the basketball analogy really quickly. Like, you know, you're not born the perfect and best basketball player ever. We know the best basketball players in the world practice all the time, right? And but they don't practice like randomly. They focus on skills that they want to get better at. There's some things they may be already really, really good at, and they practice those less because they're already really good. It's the same idea. And official SAT practice on Khan Academy does that. Here's where you should focus. Here's how to spend 15 minutes. Here's how to spend one hour. And let's show you your progress so that you feel more confident. And just to share a little bit of data, because I sure. do think data matters. And it's, yeah. it's kind of like, well, why should parents believe that this tool is good? Yeah. So let me share some data. So we launched it in 2016. 10 million students have used it so far, which is amazing. Um, and the research across huge groups of students shows us that six to eight hours of total practice time is associated on average with a 90-point score improvement from the PSAT to SAT. Wow. That is big growth. Yeah. And it can change the trajectory that a student is on and the kind of college they can go to. Yeah. Uh, one other data point on this. Yeah, you know, millions of kids take the SAT every year. Millions use official SAT practice to get ready. But one more data point, just to really show uh, students and families the power of practice. Um, last year, so class of 2019 in high school, over a hundred thousand students across this country used official SAT practice, and their score went up by more than 200 points. Right, right. Right. And uh, this is really the kind of information that we absolutely have to share, because what we're trying to say is that, yeah, maybe you're coming out of the gate and you're down a court. You know, maybe that could that that's you. That's your story for a moment where you're just not knowing what that's about. But that can change. And that's really why we're here talking about it. Now, let me ask you this, because I know the time goes really quickly here. Part of the other thing is understanding how many options you you have. And I think people don't know about student search service. They, I don't think they know much about that. I think everybody hears about a lot of this other, uh, you know, uh, ways to get ready. 
but what is the student search service? Because I think that's important to mention today. You're right. You're right. It's actually, I'm, I'm so glad we've, we started with practice because that is where it starts. But there's another, um, another challenge that we're trying to work on, which is, um, this is my term, not official, but what I'll call findability. That's right? right. There are millions of students across this country every year who are seniors in high school. There are tons of colleges all over the country, big and small, famous and less famous, all, many of which, by the way, famous or not, are really darn good. And there are scholarship programs who literally their entire purpose of existing is to give away money to college for college to kids, right? See, this is kind of the world, right? Millions of kids, tons of colleges, tons of them, great, great, great schools, some of which, you know, you may not have heard of as a student and scholarship organizations who want to give away money and they all need to find each other. And that's not something that happens automatically. So what student search, student search service does. <laughs> is students can opt in. It is a choice. So a student says, yes, I want to join. They can opt out at any time, but, but they, can, they opt in. And then it makes them findable, for lack of a better term. We use student data privacy. It's, they're only findable to colleges and scholarship programs. It's, it is very safe. But what it does is it opens this little universe of students, colleges, scholarship programs. And that's the universe. Those are the only people in the universe. And they can now start finding each other. And so what really like what happens in practice is students start receiving exciting mail. I remember when it started coming into my parents' <laughs> house for me that are sent you know, brochures, information. Hey, we're this college, we're that college, we're this scholarship program. You look like you could be a great match uh, or fit for us. Let's talk. You should learn more. That, it just starts a conversation. That's all it does. But that's really important. And without it, you know, it might be hard for students to learn about schools and, and scholarships they haven't already heard of. And it can be hard for colleges to find every kid in the country who they might want. It's overwhelming. And I think that's the key point that I think we're making here today. If we don't have or we don't share the information that you have and make sure that we're getting this into the hands of parents, we're getting this into the hands of kids and schools, then they're not even going to know what the options are. And I want to thank you for getting out here and doing it because it is, it's the process that never gets started because folks don't believe they stand a chance. It's the thing that never gets started. I've never seen anything that cuts somebody's lifeline off to possibilities than this. And how do I know it? Because I know it. I didn't take <laughs> the SATs. I didn't take the exams. I had to wait till I was older. And then I was in a position where I didn't have any choice. And I'm just saying to folks, if you're listening to this and you've got children out there and grandchildren out there, please work with them. Please get them in there. Maybe even sit with them when they're practicing because it can be scary. Priscilla, thank you so much. Please give out the website thank again. You. Yes, so two places. Um, for all the information about the SAT, it's sat.org for that amazing free practice tool. It is satpractice.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing, okay? 
I can't uh, wait. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. You betcha. Have a great one. I can't talk to I can't you wait too. to talk to you again. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be back in a few months. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Inspire. Create. Empower. Only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. Hi, this is Kimberly Carlson, and I would love for you to tune in to All In Healing Radio, where together we will begin to experience health, happiness, and harmony in all areas and aspects of life. Join us every first Tuesday of the month at 11 a.m. on TransformationTalkRadio.com. All In Healing will help you release layers of negative beliefs and energies for radiant health, deep joy, and greater abundance. Visit me at KimberlyCarlson.com. The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance from the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On The Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Hey, how's it going? If it's stressful or just plain exhausting, New Light Living is here to ask, is this the way you want to live? Join me, your intuitive spiritual life coach and host, Orika Sullivan, every week on New Light Living. Discover the power of creative tools to start living every day as your ideal dream day. See your life in the new light. To learn more, visit newlightliving.com. your inspiration all day on TransformationTalkRadio.com. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Hey, everybody. Welcome. You know, look, for over 15 years, we have been taking on and going against the grain. You know, sometimes we talk about things that seem a little bit unconventional, but from day one, one of the things that you have learned about was the fact that my sister, 
passed away on a hospital floor at about 450 pounds. And when you have that kind of experience in your life, you wonder, you wonder if there's anything that can be done. Well, today, I want to introduce you to Dr. Neil Barnard, who's joining me here today, President of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and, and by the way, much more than that. But today, what we're talking about is we're talking about something that I love to talk about, and that is research and researching. But more importantly, are we really in awe on what the levels of obesity might be, illness might be, and are we also in awe? to know that there might be something we could do about it. That's what Dr. Neal is here to talk to us about. Nutrition researcher, New York Times bestselling author. Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, look, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many shows I've done about health and the reason and wellness and well-being. And the reason I did that is because six months after starting this, I came down with a mystery disease. So this became more, more than just doing a radio show and starting a network. It literally became a mystery that I was trying to unravel. But it seems like you have unraveled it. And I am so eager to hear how you are taking the lid off of something that all of us should know about in our everyday lives. Thank you for doing that. Tell us about the relationship of foods and what it is that we put in our bodies that can either keep ourselves aligned or just knock everything out of whack. Well, you know, it's, it's, some of this is not really immediately apparent why it would work. For example, um, years ago, I got a call when I was sitting at my desk from a young woman who had terrible, terrible menstrual cramps. She couldn't get out of bed. She felt terrible. And I gave her a prescription that might raise your eyebrow. I said, let me give you some painkillers for a couple of days. But to stop this from happening next month, how about this? No animal products at all in your diet. Keep oils really low. She said, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll try it. Um, and she, she did. And she found that her, her period arrived no symptoms at all. And she was cured until she, if, if she would deviate from the diet, all that pain would come back. Um, what you wouldn't realize is that by getting the animal products out of your diet, the amount of estrogen, the female sex hormone in your blood, gets back down into the healthy range. So instead of fueling too much cramping, you just feel perfectly fine. Um, we put this to the test in a research study with the Georgetown University's Department of OBGYN. And in the course of this study, one of the women who thought she was participating in the study for her cramps, she discovered she had thought she was infertile. She got pregnant in the course of the research study. She now has three kids. But here's my point. You wouldn't necessarily think that having vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains, that that could affect fertility mm. or cramps. But it does because the food changes cause your hormones to change. And when your hormones get back in balance, then your whole body changes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I th let me just ask you this question because I go back to my grandma and I think about, you know, my grandma and, and what it was that us kids grew up with and how we grew up and what we learned. And when I think back to those days, I'm really in awe of how far away from some of those, uh, let me just call it food rituals in my family, uh, you know, how far away we've gotten. And, and this is really kind of interesting because, 
this is a society that we live in where the 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 most used four letter word in our society is not what you think it's diet and yet have we learned about the power that we have to do some shifting of our own bodies and our own hormones by simply what we put into our mouths you know we've forgotten a lot of the yeah. things that our grandparents knew about you know our grandparents knew what beans were you know, it maybe maybe your grandparents came from Italy. It was chickpeas. If they came from Mexico, it might be pinto beans or black beans. But but a couple generations ago, these were everyday food, vegetables that came out of your garden. But we're also introducing things that our grandparents did not eat. Back in 1909, the, when the U.S. government started tracking, the average American was not eating very much cheese, less than four pounds in a year. Well. This year, the average American is consuming about 35 or 36 pounds of that yellow asphalt. And we think, well, that's normal. That's what makes the pizza taste good. Our grandparents weren't in that camp at all. These mm. subtle changes year after year are the reason for certain hormone-related cancers like breast cancer and prostate cancer. This food is a huge driver for those, as well as thyroid problems and mood problems and many, many other things. Don't get me wrong. Food isn't everything but it's the most important thing when it comes to your health. Well, let's talk about the way that you are bringing this to the forefront in your book, Your Body in Balance. Um, and what I love is that you're coming out of the gate and you're saying, look, this is a new science. It's a new science of food. And I'm so glad that you're talking about that because the wide range of things that can get out of whack when our hormones are out of whack it's enormous, isn't it? I don't think there's enough time in this short interview to like go over everyone, but there are some really big ones. And I want to hit you up on one right now, if I could. And that is thyroid. I think thyroid is one of those things when you say it, almost everybody out there says, I've been to the doctor, they can't figure it out. And you can fill in the blank. But in your book, are you approaching this in a way that allows people to look at things that are happening with themselves and make their own adjustment. Oh, yes. And it's surprisingly easy. Um, you, you, what you said is exactly right. Uh, the person's there, you're gaining weight and your energy level isn't so hot. And you think my skin doesn't look so good. And there's something my, my hair isn't quite right. And it, it's all vague symptoms. But as time goes on, more and more of these symptoms add together. And your doctor says, uh, let's do a blood test. And the doctor checks your thyroid. And so many people are low in thyroid. In some cases, they're too high. And so what do you do with your diet? Well, thyroid hormone requires iodine. And iodine is in iodized salt. Um, but you switch to sea salt or Himalayan salt. So you're not getting the iodized salt anymore. So you, got, you became hypothyroid. Real easy fix. Or there's iodine also in sea vegetables, which many Americans neglect. Bring them back in your diet. Uh, easy fix. The bigger issue, though, for thyroid problems in the U.S. is that antibodies are affecting our thyroid. Your body makes antibodies, which are like little torpedoes that are designed to, to knock out viruses. But in this case, your body is making them against your own thyroid gland. And the spark for that appears to be foods, uh, unhealthy foods that we're eating that cause this to happen. So in your body and balance in the thyroid chapter, we're going to talk about the foods to eat for health and they can get us back in balance. But it's the same kind of theme. Vegetables are good as are fruits and beans and whole grains, whereas the bad stuff is animal products, uh, fried foods, added oils. Those are all in the bad list. 
you know, let's talk about your book. But before we get there, two things. One, how do people find out more about you and how do they find out about uh, how to pre-order the book? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, uh, our approach, you will see it at the Physicians Committee's website. It's pcrm.org. That stands for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, pcrm.org. Uh, but the book, that Your Body and Balance, it's everywhere books are sold, whether it's uh, barnesandnoble.com or Target or Amazon.com. Um, frankly, if you have a surviving bookstore in your neighborhood, they would appreciate your business, I, I'm quite sure. Um, look, so many questions to ask you. Generally, I do a full hour show on a topic like this. So I want to get at a couple things. When I think about this and what you're doing, I want to know from you, what are the most important things we need to talk to folks about today in this short interview? And the reason I ask that question is because we are now looking at a life and death situation. And I, and I don't say that, um, you know, flippantly. I really do believe that, you know, my sister did die on a hospital floor. So I know what that's about. But people seem to think this is a daunting undertaking to reverse perhaps a lifetime. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the top three things you want people to walk away uh, from this interview with today? Okay. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. And by the way, I'm so sorry with what your family had to undergo mm-hmm. and the loss of your sister. It's terrible when 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 things go wrong. And in, in modern medicine, we're a little bit too quick with pills and procedures yeah. and and unfortunately, we tend to ignore what the healing process can do on its own when mm. you when you allow foods to take over. So to make it short and sweet, yeah. the idea is that is that we've got hormones that control things. So let's say it's sex hormones like estrogens or testosterone, estrogens in women, testosterone in men. Those, when they are out of balance from eating cheese and meat and fried foods, then the result is a whole mixture of things, cramps when you're younger, hot flashes when you're older, infertility in between. If we get on a healthy diet, all those things get better. Then we go on to the next, thyroid hormone, as we talked about. If we get that in balance, a whole range of things improve. The next hormone, insulin. That's not working right when a person has diabetes. Let's get that back together. And then there are neurohormones that affect our mood. If you're feeling depressed, could it be because of life events or could it be because maybe your gut bacteria are responding to the foods you're eating and they're cranking out things that make you feel rotten. Let's get your body in balance and then hopefully your health can rebound. Yeah. And, you know, I love the suggestions you're putting in the book as well. You know, I love, you know, the way you're saying to folks, look, yeah, put more fruit in your in your stock up on more fruit than you actually need, because when you get hungry, there you go. Just grab for it. Um, and you're right. Um, a, a, a banana, <laughs> a banana is better than a bag of potato chips. And I think you, you're really keen on letting folks know that we have to have a different strategy with how we stock our shelves, don't we? Well, we sure do. But I don't want people to feel modest about this. If they think, well, maybe this will just help a little bit or something. Wait a minute. It can help hugely. There was a man who came into one of our first diabetes studies. He had diabetes all up and down his family tree. He said, this means I'm probably going to go blind, lose a leg. Well, he came in and we changed his diet in a big way. We threw out the animal products. We kept oils low. Over a year's time, he lost 60 pounds. His doctor stopped his diabetes medications because he didn't need them anymore. His blood sugar came down to the absolutely normal range. In other words, here was a man who thought he was condemned 
to having this disease for the rest of his life, and it went away. And as a doctor, when you have a patient where you teach them a healthier diet, that affects their whole family so that then now their kids are at less risk. And when we have people who then make the change for diabetes, their cholesterol goes down and their blood pressure goes down. Everything gets better at the same time. So if you have a loved one and you're feeling, well, maybe we're not quite in the best balance, just put these recipes to work. I've got 65 wonderful recipes from Lindsay Nixon who worked with me on this book. Put them to work or put together my tips for how to eat out so that you eat in the very best way you can, whatever restaurant you're at. It's, it's fun and it's empowering. Yeah, and I want to I want to just give give people a takeaway from you. And I don't think we can say this enough. Check the label, check the label. And I I think if we did that, simply checking the label and really thinking twice about what we put in our cart, I, I think we'll all be better. You know, the other thing too is, do you find that people are more likely to really go after and really take care of themselves if they take one step at a time? Although sometimes you need to take drastic measures, don't you? Well, I would suggest breaking it into steps. And step one is figure out why you want to change this. What do you want? Are you a man with erectile dysfunction that you want to get better? Mm -hmm. Are you a woman with hot flashes that you're sick of? What is your target? Do you want to just lose some weight? Then step two, take seven days. During the seven days, identify vegan foods you would like. And it can be instead of milk on my cornflakes, it'll be almond milk. Instead of the meat taco, I'll have the bean burrito, whatever it is. That's seven days. Find breakfast, lunches, dinners you like. Step three, eat plant-based foods for three weeks. No animal products at all and keep oils low. And at the end of three weeks, you are going to feel like a different person. So it doesn't have to take a long time. And the changes can be big, but do it stepwise and you will. it's just an amazing thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much. And please, please give out the website again and tell folks how they can get a copy of the book. Thank you. It's pcrm.org. And you'll find your body in balance on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Target or your local bookstore, anywhere. It's called Your Body in Balance. I hope people will share it with somebody they love. I hope they do, too, because I'll tell you what, we only get one of these things called the body. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Um, hey, Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Hey, everybody, this is really a fantastic book. Take a look at it because even a simple a simple few changes will transform your, your life and your body. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. TransformationTalkRadio.com Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Um, a number of months ago, we started to talk about what we've seen in the changes in infant mortality, as well as birth defects and other conditions that we now see on the rise for newborns. But we don't always talk about the good news. We don't always talk about how this is the most incredible time in a family's life. But when you are struck with something like the news of something wrong with your newborn, you go into a different mode if you're a mom. And we've had several people on the show talk about being a mom who have had children that were born into this world with situations and conditions they didn't expect. Today, Dr. Scott Adzik is joining me here today, Surgeon-in-Chief at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, to talk to us about where are we, sort of like a town hall, state of affairs, 
with saving and improving the lives of thousands of children worldwide. Uh, thank you, Dr. Scott, for joining me here today. You, you know, th this is a, a conversation that very few people look at, especially in the media. But if you look at it, you're looking at the rise in, how should I say it, the range of birth defects. Where are we? Can you give us sort of a rundown, sort of a state of the union as to what you found and why this is passion and purpose for you? Well, this is uh, January is birth defects awareness month, yep. so it's very typical. Yeah. Um, so a few key points about birth defects. I'm a pediatric surgeon and I spend a lot of my time uh, repairing birth defects, both after birth and less commonly before birth. But that's what we're talking about. So the key points with birth defects, one in every 33 babies is born with a birth defect. So it's amazingly common. Your birth defects are costly. Billions of dollars are required for medical treatment. Birth defects are merciless. No parent is immune. Mm -hmm. They're mysterious. Most causes of birth defects are unknown. They're overlooked. Uh, in my view, research is underfunded. And they're deadly. Birth defects are the most common cause of infant mortality. So each year in the U.S., nearly 150,000 babies are born with birth defects. With And many are conditions so rare, most parents and even some clinicians have never heard of them. So we found that these families aren't made aware of the treatments available at a place like our Center for Fetal Diagnosis and Treatment. They're left feeling overwhelmed with few options. So being on, on your show helps uh, educate yeah. people. Yeah. Well, uh, for many people that, you know, right now we're in the pop culture uh, here looking at all of these uh, movie awards. Uh, so we went from the Golden Globes to the Critic Choice Awards, getting ready for the Oscars. And one of the world's greatest known uh, actors on screen, uh, you know, to look at him, you might not see it. But when you step back, he is someone that experienced uh, birth defect. And I'm talking about Joaquin Phoenix. And so yeah, with, he had a cleft lip and power. Exactly. And so besides looking at this from uh you know a societal perspective, the science around this though has accelerated exponentially to save lives and perhaps even prevent this, right? Well, uh, with regard to cleft lip and palate, it's interesting. In our Department of Surgery meeting this morning, one of our researchers gave an entire lecture on the causes of cleft lip and palate, what might be able to be done in the future biologically with gene therapy to, to treat this before birth. We have a huge craniofacial center here. Most cases of cleft lip and palate are now diagnosed before birth. This is not something we do surgery on before birth, yeah. of course, because the risk exceed the benefits in this particular case because it's not life-threatening and treatments after birth with our skilled plastic surgeons are very good but you're 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 right and if you're thinking about film awards you, you might be interested and your listeners might be interested that we had a pbs special three one-hour episodes called called uh, uh twice born yeah. the special delivery unit that actually won an emmy how about yeah. that yeah no that's that how about that that's awesome so would you like to hear about some uh, particular birth defects that we repair before birth? What I'd like to, yes. I, not only would I like to hear about that, but what I think uh, our listeners are interested in is the progression of the science. Because, you know, we look at things in a very limited way sometimes, and we're not usually made aware of the awe 
that science is making to save lives. And, and, and this, this is one of them that we need to talk about because it's almost futuristic, but it's now. <laughs> right. So I, I can give a couple of yeah, examples please. of we do now. But then um, even more interestingly, perhaps, what we have planned uh, for the future. We have big plans. So two examples, the two most common fetal surgeries we do are first, uh, fetoscopic laser therapy for twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which I'll explain. And the second one is fetal surgery for spina bifida, which we pioneered. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just talk about that. And then yeah. I'll talk about the future, which will be stem cell transplants, gene therapy, and the artificial womb. So first, twin-twin transfusion syndrome. That's known as TTTS. Here's the setup. Uh, pregnant mother, of course, with twins, identical twins in the uterus, each in their own separate amniotic sac. U usually twins have their own placenta, one each. In this, in this particular circumstance, there's one placenta that's shared, and there are abnormal blood vessels that go from one side of the placenta to the other, such that from the mother, one twin gets too much blood and goes into heart failure and has an excess of amniotic fluid, and the other twin doesn't get enough blood and goes into kidney failure and doesn't produce amniotic fluid, which is basically fetal urine. Those twins will go on to die unless we do fetoscopic laser therapy. So we put a scope through the mother's abdominal wall, through the uterine wall, visualize the placenta with the scope, and use a laser fiber to photocoagulate or occlude the culprit unpaired blood vessels going from one side to the other with very good results. In most cases, both twins can be saved. Second example, fetal surgery for spina bifida. So what's spina bifida? Well, spina bifida occurs early in gestation, early in the pregnancy, when the normal tissues, bone and skin and fascia, uh, don't form around the spinal cord. And the higher the defect is on the spine, the more nerves are affected. So these are children when treated after birth or the wheelchair kids uh, who also have hydrocephalus and require a shunt tube. We found that if you do the repair before birth, you can mitigate many of these ill effects. And children who have spina bifida repair before birth, which involves a big operation for the mom. She goes to sleep. We open her abdomen. We open the uterus with a stapling device. And then we close the spina bifida defect before birth and then close everything up. And then those children who have the repair before birth have a much higher likelihood of having more normal leg function, the ability to walk, a de decreased incidence of hydrocephalus, decreased need for one of those shunt tubes. So those are just two current examples and there are many others. Now, yeah, but we're, we're, we're talking like we're talking like 1500 plus babies born with spina bifida. In the U.S. Right. Yeah. So, so that translates to about 30 per week, yeah. about five in, in the U.S. alone. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is what I mean uh, when I reference sort of the, the sci-fi futuristic, because what you just described is literally something that we look at as something in the future. But what you all are doing is you're bringing it to real time. You're bringing it to say, hey, wait a minute. We have figured this out. What's on the horizon for you? And, and well, how can all, people you know, find out more? Well, first first of all, you, you can go to our website, which mm -hmm. is uh, at CHOP, which is fetalsurgery.chop.edu. Fetalsurgery, one word, dot CHOP, C-H-O-P, dot E-D-U. But on the horizon uh, are three developments. One is in utero stem cell transplantation to treat cellular mm -hmm. deficiency diseases that can be diagnosed like sickle cell anemia. Secondly, uh, in utero gene editing. 
to treat prenatally diagnosed genetic abnormalities by using CRISPR technology to cut out the the bad gene and put in a good gene. Mm -hmm. So that's we've shown proof of principle in animal studies, and that I think eventually will be applied clinically. The stem cell transplant stuff is ready to apply in the next year or so for sickle cell anemia. The third development is where we've done done work to develop the artificial womb. Again, in animal models, fetal sheep, we've shown that in the artificial womb, we, we can sustain a, a fetal lamb who couldn't survive outside the artificial womb for four to five weeks with normal growth and development by cannulating the umbilical vessels, oxygenator, and then they're in a fluid environment. So we hope to, and I think this is a real possibility, within the next year or so, start to apply this clinically to babies born at 23, 24, 25 weeks gestation, or term is 40 weeks. Those kids now, with current technology, have a very high mortality rate, and those who survive, a very high complication rate. And if they could just have four to five more weeks, that would make a world of difference. Yeah. You know, this is really, for me, when I think about the work that you all are doing, um, there's absolutely a, an element of this that we need to talk about for a minute. And that is how this instills hope where there wasn't any. And I, I think right. about this, uh, Dr. Scott, and I think about what you all are doing. And I know you're, you, you know, this is fantastic science and medicine. But the other side of it is you bring a new level of hope and a new level of joy into what it really means to give birth. And, you know, what is the early diagnosis of this? Because I, and I know I've got like two minutes left, but, but how does this even get diagnosed? Have we developed science to do this like early enough to make a difference? Right. So m most of the fetal surgeries we do are between uh, 19 and 26 weeks gestation. Most m mothers in the U.S., most pregnant mothers have an ultrasound done at, at 18 to 20 weeks gestation. And, Firstly, all the anatomic birth defects with a good ultrasound should, should be able to be detected. Mm -hmm. There are additional diagnostic modalities. Fetal MRI, for example, we invented that in the late 90s. So now that's spread worldwide. So you get additional information, particularly about the mm -hmm. fetal brain and support. And the third development, which has a bright future, is non-invasive prenatal testing. Mm. which involves taking a maternal blood sample, a blood sample from the mom, and there are fetal cells and fetal DNA in small quantities in the maternal blood. And those can be ferreted out and analyzed, and one can rule out uh, genetic abnormalities like trisomies. But that's going to become much more sophisticated to be able to diagnose most genetic problems in fetuses with a simple maternal blood mm -hmm. draw. Wow. I, first of all, thank you so much for bringing this information to our our audience. Um, I have just one last thing. Please give us the website again, and then I'd like to know your personal message. What would you like to leave us with here today, Dr. Scott? Um, well, the, the website is fetalsurgery.chop.edu, so fetalsurgery.chop.edu. The message is um, unlucky. It's truly inspiring. To see so many children who as babies and fetuses likely would have died now running around and growing up healthy and strong. Yeah. Thank you so very, very much. The following audio is via a Skype call.